Let's talk to the Lord together. Father, you are worthy. Worthy of all the praise and even more than we can give. What a God. A God who would love us in spite of us. A God who's gone before us. A God who's with us today. And a God who's got the future worked out. A God who doesn't give up. A God who doesn't get disappointed with us and throw us aside. A God who consistently works your plan out. Worthy to be praised. Father, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to sing to you and to pray to you and to hear you speak to us through your word. Thank you, dear God, for all the avenues that you have allowed us to enjoy that we might have fellowship with you. And here we are in the midst of a worship service, Lord, that you've called us to. By divine appointment, we're here, each one of us today. We're here to give thanks. Father, I wish I could look back over the last week and all of our lives and say that We've lived a life worthy of you, but I know that's not true. Sin still crouches at the door of our life, roaming around like a lion wanting to devour us. Sometimes when we least expect, he pounces on us. Sometimes, dear God, we even invite him in. Please, Father, forgive us. And help us to understand that forgiveness comes at a tremendous price. It comes through the shed blood of your one and only Son, Jesus. Help us, dear God, to not just utter the words, forgive me, Lord, for the things I do that are wrong, but help us then to surrender anew and allow the power of your Holy Spirit to work in us and to change us and to make each one of us into someone that's more pleasing to you. And help us, dear God, to believe that's true and possible. That while we can't accomplish that by ourselves, you can accomplish that through us. You tell us to be joyful people and to rejoice with you You tell us to find our peace in you and our happiness in you. Help us to put aside those things that are blocking that, Lord, and help us to be single-minded as we focus on you. Let our very life grow out of Jesus and our relationship with him so that he might influence every part of our life. Put a smile on our face and warm our heart, Lord, And help us to walk with you, I pray. Father, if we take an assessment of what goes on in our world, of nations that are at war or threatening war, at people and groups of people who take advantage of other people, of the hurt that we see, 
the depravity that we see. If we look just at all that, Lord, we could be overwhelmed and lose hope. But you remind us constantly that you have not yet taken your hand off of this world and that you and you alone are God. No person, no wealthy person or powerful person or person in high office, you, dear God, are the one and only God. Father, there are a lot of folks I could pray for this morning. All of us have people in our own families that need help and need blessing. Some more than others. So many folks, Lord, who've not surrendered their life and yet worship you on Sunday (coughs) and go back out on Monday and try to be the Lord of their own life. So many people, Lord, who have influence over other people, instead of living for those other folks, they live for themselves, and we ask you to forgive them as you forgive us. We've messed it up pretty good, Lord. We've messed up a beautiful country. We've messed up a wonderful opportunity that you've given us in this country. And we even hurt some of the people we love the most. Please, Father, I pray for revival in your land. It'd be so easy for us to slip off the edge and become like so many other countries that have experienced you and then turn their backs on you and ask you to leave. I pray you'd change that. I pray, dear God, that your Holy Spirit would reach into some of the most unlikely places and into some of the most unlikely people and bring them into a saving knowledge and bring them to the point of surrendering their lives. And as we look around, dear God, we'll give you all the glory and all the praise. Father, we're a small church and kind of a rural area in Georgia. But I ask you, Lord, to let your Holy Spirit have the freedom to move in us that we might make a difference in this community with the people at the filling station and the people in the restaurants and the people in the grocery store and the others we come in contact with. And I pray, dear God, that we might build a reputation of being a people who love, not a people who are critical. Of a people who reach out and not a people who reach in. Help us to be a surrendered congregation. Each and every one. Thank you for your love through Jesus Christ our Lord, and our Savior. It's in his precious name that we pray. Amen. We're going to begin a study this morning of Paul's letter to the Philippians.
Paul's letter to the Philippians. And between now and the end of the year, with a couple of exceptions, like during Christmas, we're going to go verse by verse through Philippians. So if you want to read ahead, you're welcome to do that. If you want to study some parallel materials, that's fine. But we're going to do it a verse at a time. We're going to start this morning with Philippians, the first chapter, and we're going to look at the first seven verses. Philippians, the first chapter, and we're going to start with verse 1. As soon as you've found your place, please look up. I encourage you to keep your Bibles open and follow along and let the Word just jump off the page at you. Let's pray together. Father, very humbly we come to you asking you for a measure of grace beyond anything that we would naturally have. Lord, there are a lot of things we read and we comprehend and even remember some of them. But when your Holy Spirit embraces us and gets involved in that process, your word becomes alive for us and sharper than a two-edged sword. And it pierces to the very place inside of us that needs to be pierced. So I ask you, dear God, to now open your word for us and to bless what we're about to do. And I ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Whenever I make a reference like I'm about to make, I always feel like I'm giving my age away. And I try to keep my age a secret. I know you can't look at me and tell how old I am. 1955. Black and white TV? Maybe color. A new program started. Came into most of our homes and most of us became very familiar with James Arness. Gunsmoke. For 20 years, set a record, they produced new shows from 55 to 75. It was on the radio before that. Dodge City? Felt like I grew up there. Boot Hill. I was almost disappointed to find out there was more than one Boot Hill. Tombstone, Arizona? There's a Boot Hill. Deadwood, South Dakota? There's a Boot Hill. But the real Boot Hills in Dodge City, Kansas. I don't know if you can remember this, but way back when that series first started, Matt Dillon would go off when he wanted to be by himself and think, and he'd go to Boot Hill. And he'd go up among the rocks and the wooden tombstones, and he'd ponder and think through the issues of life. I did a little research on Boot Hill. I got interested in it. You know why they called it Boot Hill? It was a cemetery that was set up by towns out west where they could bury people who weren't raised in that community and had no connection with it. And the reason they called it Boot Hill is because most of the people died in a violent kind of experience with their boots on. I often wondered if they buried them with their boots. But that's where it came from. 
The mortician, and I know you're just dying to hear this, the morticians would take the people who were killed in their towns, and because typically they were not known, they would put them on a board in a display window so people could look and see if they could identify the person who was dead. And they'd let them lay there for two days. And the people who lived in the town would all gawk through the window at these people. And if they knew them, they'd go in and tell the mortician. And the mortician would write some appropriate words on the wooden tombstone, which would last about seven or eight years. And then you wouldn't be able to read it, or the tombstone would have fallen down by then. Can I read a couple of tombstone notes to you? One simply said, Marshal Fred White, shot by Curly Bull, 1880. Well, if you stop and think about that, that tells you a lot about Fred White. He was a marshal, and about Curly Bull, who was a bad guy, and how he shot the sheriff. So you learn a lot about people from their tombstones. Incidentally, more than half the tombstones had nothing written on them. Nobody to remember them. There was another tombstone. Gave the name of the person in the year, and it simply said, he ran for sheriff, then he ran from the sheriff, and he died. A third inscription. Here lies George Johnson. Hanged by mistake in 1882. He was right. We were wrong. But we strung him up, and now he's gone. (laughs) Now, why did I do all that? I wonder when you and I die. I wonder who's going to remember us. A lot of people are not remembered. They just kind of fade away. I wonder what it is that you and I might do in our life that would cause us to be remembered. What Paul does in this passage is he starts to write a letter and he wants to talk about what he remembers about the people in the church at Philippi. Do you have an idea of where Philippi was? Picture Greece and the little piece of Greece that goes off to the east is Macedonia. And Philippi was right above the Aegean Sea in Macedonia. It was a city that was started before Jesus was born, 300 years before. Someone discovered gold. You know, people have been looking for gold for a long time, haven't they? They were looking for gold. So gold prospectors moved to an area that was just hillsides, and they started looking and mining gold. There was a road that went, the Romans had built, from the Far East all the way into Italy. It was the only road that had any form of protection 
where people could feel relatively safe traveling that road. And this town, like lots of other towns, was just a couple of miles away from that road. So there was commerce going by, and they could get their gold out to market. If you go back and read in Acts, there are a couple of references to Philippi. You'll remember some of them. It was the first city or town that the Apostle Paul went into in Europe where he planted a church, and that church reached into the underbelly of Europe and began to evangelize other places in Europe. While he was in that town, he met a a lady named Lydia. She was from modern-day Turkey, Thyatira. She was a businesswoman. She sold garments that were made with purple dye. I'm looking at Bob's shirt as I say that. But with purple dye. Purple dye was a very expensive way to dye a shirt because of the process made in retrieving shells, a particular kind, off the floor of the Mediterranean and processing the liquid that came out of the bladder to dye things purple. Well, she came to know Jesus through Paul's ministry in that city. Also, we know about a jailer. When Paul and Silas were beaten in the marketplace and thrown into jail and commissioned to be killed the next day, and an angel, you remember the story, came in the midst of the night and took the bindings, the chains off of Paul, opened gates and let Paul walk out. And when the jailer was close to committing suicide because he knew If those folks escaped from his jail, he would be killed. And instead, he was born again. He came to know Jesus Christ through the ministry of Paul. Pretty significant city. And what Paul did is he went there and he started a church there. Imagine that. Nobody was a Christian, not one person. And he would go into a synagogue, because he was a Jew, and that would get him into the synagogues, and he would begin to speak and tell them that the promised Messiah had come. And by the grace of God, a church grew up from that meager effort. You know that's still possible today? That's even possible in the United States of America. It doesn't matter how spiritually dark a place is if God wants to move into that area. So what Paul did is he went into a very dark place spiritually, into Philippi, and planted a church. And then he leaves, and he writes a letter back to the Philippians. He did this over and over again. He would hear what was going on. People would come and tell him what was happening in the life of the church. In this case, that's partly true, but he was also just writing to encourage them. He had such fond memories of them. So when you get to the first verse, you start to hear that letter. Let me read the first seven verses. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus whom are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, 
always offering prayers with joy in my every prayer for you all. In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have been, I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. You all are partakers of grace with me. You know what you just heard? You just heard the living God speak to you and to me. As if he were right here in this room. And he did that very intentionally. So there's something in this for us. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Paul begins by calling himself and Timothy bondservants. He uses that phrase, and depending on your translation, sometimes it says slave, bond slave. There are other ways of expressing it, but it's a beautiful thing to say. When I think of bonding, I like to work with wood, and I think about taking two pieces of wood and putting them together with an adhesive in the midst of them and putting them together with a vice and putting pressure on them and letting them cure. And when you take the vices off, it's one. One intended to stay together, not to come apart. Wouldn't you be disappointed if every piece of furniture in your house suddenly one day all the glue joints let go? Can you imagine what you'd have all over the floor, all over your house? Well, the intention here is Paul's saying, no, no, this is a permanent adhesion. We are bonded to Jesus. Wouldn't that be wonderful? If that described us in an absolute kind of way. He said, bond servants. A bond servant is somebody who's not after their own way. A bond servant is somebody who doesn't have a better idea than God's got. A bond servant is someone who surrenders to the will of God and says, here I am, Lord. Use me. Take me. Whatever you want, I'm here and available. That doesn't describe very many of us. But that's who Paul was. And that's the encouragement to you and to me to be like Paul and Timothy and others who truly are bond servants. He says, bond servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints. When you think about somebody being sainted, what do you think about? I go back a ways. I go back to King Arthur in the movies and seeing this great big sword come out and somebody kneeling down and the sword being placed on each shoulder and saying that they're being set aside as a saint. Is it what they did? Or is it the one in authority who is setting the person aside? 
Surely the person who's being knighted, that person has done something worth merit. But that is not a perfect person. Instead, the one who's bestowing that on them, the one who sets a person aside and calls them a saint, it's about the one who's doing it, not about the one who's being sainted. And what he's saying is, I'm writing a letter to you, and you are saints, not so much about what you've done, but about the fact that God has included you in his family. That's us. He's brought us in, he's put his arms around us, and and we're part of that family. He says another interesting thing in that introduction, those first couple of verses. He refers to Christ Jesus twice. The emphasis is on God. Remember what kind of culture they lived in? Lived in the Roman Empire. Do you remember what people did when they referred to the emperor? What they say? Hail, Caesar. What did they say in Nazi Germany? Do you know what that's all about? It's elevating the person that they're acknowledging to the position of God. And Adolf Hitler and his regime did that quite intentionally. People who are in authority oftentimes allow the power that has been vested in them to take them to an unhealthy extreme and other people follow them. And people look to those people in authority or to their governments thinking that somehow they're going to get blessed by them and they're going to be taken care of. And oftentimes those people without authority and that power are doing it to their own ends with little concern about those who are saying, Hail, Caesar. So what he does is he makes reference not to the God of the people that they worship on earth, but he makes reference to Christ Jesus, Christ the Savior, sent by God to save people. Now, You and I can read through that today and maybe miss some of the impact of that, but I promise you (coughs) people in the city of Philippi understood that because they were a province of Rome and they knew all about the Roman government. (coughs) He goes on to say in verses 3 through 5, here's some things that I remember about you. He said, I thank my God with all my remembrances of you. Well, what's he doing? He's sitting around thinking about these people that he loves and cares about. You know where he was? He was in jail. He was in prison. And his future was uncertain. He was a Roman citizen who should not have been thrown in jail by law And in spite of that, he was in jail. So he knew things were out of control. He knew that he didn't have any control over his own destiny. 
So here he is, instead of thinking about, woe is me, he's thinking about somebody else. If you and I are remembered for not just thinking about ourselves, if you and I are remembered because we think about other people and we pray for other people and we get involved in the lives of other people, I promise you that we will be remembered far more than those who had seemingly unlimited power and unlimited wealth. Their memory will fade. But when you love people and get involved with people and encourage other people, you build a memory that people won't forget. He goes on to say in verse 5, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. What he's saying is I remember that when you became a believer, you didn't just take that and go home. Instead, what you did is you took that faith that you'd been given and you began to share it with somebody else. Do you remember what happened when Paul and Silas got out of prison in Philippi? They didn't immediately leave town. Instead, they went to Lydia's home and people were gathered together worshiping there. She had told other people about the gospel. Other people were in her home and they welcomed Paul after he got out of jail. One of the ways that you and I are going to be remembered is not because we wore the most stylish clothes or because we always said the right thing. But if you and I are used by God to touch another human being with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to be remembered. You know the first person that's going to remember you? The person you shared Jesus with. I think I told you when our son died at the funeral in Columbia, South Carolina, and also at the memorial service in Memphis, Tennessee, two different men walked up to me and said to me, one, your son shared Jesus with me in college, and I'm a full-time youth worker in a church. One in the other city in Memphis said to me, Your sons shared Jesus with me, and I'm an ordained minister of a church today. They remember my son. That's how you're remembered when you do something of really significant importance. You share with somebody else the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what that gospel is? It's so simple. It's so simple that any of us can share it. It's simply that we were born into this world sinners with no hope of salvation. And if you don't believe that, look in the mirror or listen to yourself. And you'll hear that stuff is always there. And what God has done out of pure grace, while we were yet sinners, he let Jesus die for us. 
And then he reached out at a time of his choosing in our circumstance, whatever it might be, and he said, come to me. And he gave us an irresistible desire to have a relationship with him, which we never would have had if he hadn't reached out and grasped us. And when we simply say, under the power of the Holy Spirit, I accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior, we have a a room reserved in heaven. And you and I are going to go to that room one day. That's not complicated, is it? That's what's going on with the people in the church of Philippi. And Paul is saying, I remember how you participated in the sharing of the gospel. And now it's your turn. And it's my turn. It's not the turn of the person next to you. Personalize it. Now it's your turn to do what was going on there. In verse 6, he says, I am confident. That's a strong word. He said, I don't just think this might happen. I am positive this is going to happen. He said, the one who began a good work in you. You know what that good work was? He said, hey, John, you're mine. Come on. And John comes. And then he embraces you. And he starts to walk with you. And his Holy Spirit indwells you. And suddenly life takes on a whole new adventure. And you realize you're not in this by yourself. And he's at work in you. And it's a good thing. And you start to feel better about yourself, not because of you, but because you know he's in you and he loves you. And as you walk with him and talk with him, he continues to work that out so you grow closer and closer to him. Is that your experience? That's the good work, folks. As he brings you closer and closer day by day. If that's not your experience, do something about it. Say something to me or go home and get on your knees, but give God the opportunity to fully embrace you. And then he says the beautiful words. He's going to perfect this, and he's going to keep right on perfecting it until Jesus comes again. That's a promise. And Paul says, I'm absolutely confident that's the game plan. That's what's going to happen. I'm going to grow closer and closer to God until one day Jesus comes back and I'm going to be fully united. Golly, if you and I could start living for that and quit being so anxious about all the other stuff, we might enjoy him more. We might be able to relax. Maybe not take some of the medications we take. We might be able to relax and smile more and be happier people. You think that's true? I believe when we come to terms, and I'm including myself in all of this, when we come to terms with that kind of thinking, life changes. And we begin to enjoy God on a daily basis. And then in the seventh verse, he says... For it is only right for me to feel this way about you because I have you in my heart. Didn't say I have you in my mind. Didn't say I'm just thinking about you. He said I have you in my heart. 
as he remembers them and remembers the walk they're taking spiritually and how they're being used by God. He said, you're in here. What he means by heart isn't just some part of me. He's saying, I love you. Paul is saying, you're part of the family now. I'm in the family and you're in the family and we're one. You feel like you're part of the family? Folks, you are. Live the reality. You and I have been incorporated into God's family. And we're not going to get snatched back out of it. We are his for eternity. So let's live like that. Let's let that be the driving force in our life. I watched a thing on Fox News this week. They had a man and a woman on, and they had this kitty cat, about that long from head to tail. Pretty little kitty cat except for one thing. It had the saddest face you have ever seen. The corners of its mouth naturally were down. It had black rings around its eyes, which made it look like it hadn't had sleep in months. And it just looked pathetically sad. And the man's making a fortune off that kitty cat. They have products out with the kitty cat's face on them. The sad-looking kitty cat. And they ask him about the kitty cat. Is the kitty cat unhappy? He said, oh, no. That's the happiest little kitty cat you ever saw in your life. It just can't smile. And it couldn't. Folks, you can smile. And when Jesus is in here, and you know it, and you're walking with the Lord, it can find expression in the way you speak, in the way you look, in the way you respond, and it will become contagious. It'll touch other people. Smile. It works. Come on, smile. It's actually... A nice thing, isn't it? Doesn't it make you feel better to smile? And really, that's what God wants. For my friends, he's smiling on us. How are you going to be remembered? What kind of remembrance are you developing right now? Will you think about that today? Let's pray together. Father, you give us a wonderful opportunity to be remembered. Not just to live and to die and for folks not to remember us at all. The good news is, Lord, that if we know you, you're going to remember us. And we're going to spend eternity with you. But what about other folks, Lord? How are they going to remember us? I pray for each and every one of us. I pray, dear God, that you'll show us what it is you would have us do, how we might tell others about your son, 
how we might touch other people's lives and be an encouragement to them. And how, dear God, they'll remember us because you work through us. Thanks for time in your word, Lord. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. How are you doing? You ready for another week? You know what's going to happen in just a minute? You're going to walk out that back door and the world's going to be right there waiting on you. Do you have any idea how much that world needs you today? How it needs to hear about Jesus? Be an army for God. And let him use you. And smile. God bless you and God keep you until we meet again. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.